You're listening to Making a Living Show. I'm Roby Levy. Hi, I'm Eitan Millstone, and I make comedy for a living. Eitan Millstone is one half of the comedy duo Jay and Eitan. The Toronto-born, Brooklyn-based pair regularly grace the stages of legendary comedy venues like Caroline's on Broadway and UCB. Both of their albums debuted at number one on the iTunes comedy charts, and they've been featured by the likes of Funny or Die, College Humor, Comedy Network, and MTV. Here's my chat with Eitan Millstone. Who are you and what do you make for a living? Hi, I'm, uh, I'm Eitan Millstone. I make comedy uh, in a variety of contexts. And um, yeah, comedy. Well, that was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> well, how did you get started okay, making so. comedy? Tell me, take me back. <laughs> take me back to, to your yeah. first joke. What was the first joke you ever learned? Oh, um, I did. Um, I went to Humber for their um, comedy writing and performance program, Humber College uh, uh, in, in Etobicoke. I was like, I went to theater high school, like an art school. And I was like, I was like, I'm not going to college. Fuck that. <laughs> my, my Jewish father, after I took a year and a half off after high school and worked at Subway, was like, you're going somewhere. And I was like, Dad, you don't get it. Like, I've learned more from working in the real world at Subway than I ever learned in high school. He's like, yeah, 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 there are valuable <laughs> lessons in being employed. So you're going to go somewhere. So I had auditioned for National Theater School. And actually, I actually had a callback. And they, they accept like 12 people a year, which is crazy. And in the interim between my audition and my callback, I um, applied for Humber College Comedy Writing and Performance Program, thinking like, this seems a lot easier than six days a week, 10 hours a day in Montreal. And I auditioned for them and did some like one-man show thing that i wrote in high school and 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 they accepted me very quickly before my national theater school callback which i then completely phoned it in for because uh, i was like i'm not going to montreal i'm going to etobicoke i'm going to get high for two years and like go to comedy school and so in the first so that was like september 04 and in the first i think month of being there we had to do like they had um they had humber night at yuck yucks in downtown toronto right so like a showcase yeah, there was all like, it was like every Tuesday, like the new batch of students at Humber would get to go and do three minutes of stand up at Yuck Yucks. It was never that busy. It was usually like for the first one, you know, it would be like people would bring their family and friends. And then as it like continued, like nobody went to Tuesday night Humber night. Um, <laughs> but some people did. I mean, whatever, like, you know, so there was like a, a somewhat decent crowd. And I did a I did a three minute rant about this. So stupid this um article i found online about a company in japan called toto limited that had created a device for the bathroom for um men and women called the sound princess so you like run your hand over it when you're about to shit your brains out (laughs) and this like calming ocean wave sound would play to mask the sound the embarrassing sound that comes from the right so people outside wouldn't know you were taking a giant shit people outside wouldn't know you're taking a shit or people i guess but now they think the ocean is in there like yeah yeah, yeah, (laughs) they're pretty sure it's a dead giveaway i kind of just went off about how much i love pooing and how (laughs) i'm proud of those sounds and you sound like my four-year-old yeah, literally, it was the most <laughs> juvenile potty humor. But I like 
I'm a ranter, so I just I I talked fast. I ranted. I didn't shut the fuck up for three minutes and got very animated and angry at these people for not appreciating their own poo sounds. It ended pretty well. I mean, I I kind of like finished. I forget what I said, but it ended with a big uh, a big applause. All I remember is that the next day at Humber, because like we had to take gen eds, so we always had, we had to take one general education class per semester at Humber. And I was in the hall. I wasn't in the comedy building anymore <laughs> with all the rejects <laughs> and the misfits. I was in like the, the regular building. And I guess a girl from um, the regular Humber program, some program, like a college student, not like some idiot, uh, went to uh, Yuck Yucks the night before and stopped me in the hallway and was like, hey, you were amazing last night. And I was like, oh, my God, like, what? And that, and I was, I mean, I was like, oh, thank you so much. And that was like a big, I'll never forget that. That was a big, like, it was better than the applause break. It was like, somebody came up to me the next day and remembered what I said. And I was like, okay. Cause I was always in theater school. I was, I was the joker, but I like, I like straight acting. I like, um, being engaging and, and, and not necessarily worrying about going for the laugh. Comedy school was just like convenient because it was, my dad was making me do something. <laughs> but then in that class, um, it was a, one of those classes that had a lot of very, very talented comedians in it. Like, like that was our cl- class of 04 we were. And uh, almost 20 years later, there's about 15 to 20 kids from that, from our class that, that are professional stand-up comedians in New York, in Toronto, mainly Toronto, all over Canada. Some have moved to Los Angeles, but we had a really good class. So I met a lot of the people that I did comedy with for the next eight years in Toronto in that class. So that kind of, that's how it all started. Right. And so from there, I mean, once you, I don't know what the hell they give you at graduation for comedy school. A diploma? I didn't graduate. Yeah, yeah, I didn't. You didn't even graduate I, comedy was, school? Jesus, your father's so upset with you. Isn't so upset. <laughs> Couldn't even give him that. It was a two-year program. <laughs> I made it through a year and a half. <laughs> Four semesters. In the third semester, I really stopped going. I was like, <laughs> this is so stupid. Like, I was like, this is so dumb. Like, I get it. Like, like go on stage <laughs> and try to make people laugh is the gist here. Be vulnerable and find out those things about yourself that other people find funny. Hone in on that. Peel away at those layers, whatever. Like, I completely got what the gist was. And I had just finished, like, a four-year intensive theater arts program where, honestly, I felt like the students in my high school class were a thousand times more mature and the idiots that I met at Humber, I love them, but they were, they were, they were, it was these crazy psychotic human beings that I was now in class with. And I was the one that was like, guys, voice class is important. Okay. Like I just went to theater school. And so I was like, I can't do that. And I was, you know, I was, my dad gave me like some money for college, but I was like essentially paying for it myself. I was like, I'm not paying. What, what am I going to do? I'm going to take a diploma in comedy, knock on Lauren Michael's office. I think so. And yeah. Say, Hello, sir. Drop it. <laughs> walk away and expect a phone call. Like not going to happen. That's so what did, happened for Chris Farley. As far as I understand. Yeah. You know, That's exactly it, it. after hearing the Chris Farley story, I realized <laughs> I fucked up by not finishing comedy school. Yeah. But yeah no, I just kind of, I, I dropped out in uh, like Jan, like for the third semester, which was like January 06. And there was like one semester left. And I immediately went into producing a show, like a big show. And so I was kind of the first one from our class that was like, fuck school. Let's get on stage. So I, me, uh, my buddy, Keith Pedro, who's a great comedian in Toronto, um, and a friend of mine that I was working with at the time, Tyler, 
I, I, I talked to Clintons at, at uh, Bloor and Clinton. Um, uh, they gave us the room. They kept the bar. We kept the door. We charged five bucks. Invited everybody we know, like 200 people. It was insane. And we put on like a sketch and stand-up show. And it was kind of like off to the races from there. Like we just put on this show going like, oh, we got all these sketches. And a bunch of our friends did stand-up there. And it was like a huge night. And it had this feeling of like, oh, like we can do this beyond school. And so I remember my friend Bryn came up to me at the end of the show and he's just like, when's the next one? And I was like, next one. That's a good idea. <laughs> next one. Yeah. And so like from there, like we just called the show Boom Shakalaka because I had a sketch about NBA Jam. <laughs> and little Ahmad Rashad. It was, yeah, it was, uh, no, it's a guy that only speaks at NBA Jam slogans at a job interview. And so we called the show Boom Shock Lock. Everyone loved it. We did another one in August. And the next thing you know, we kind of like turned it into a monthly show. Like we, um, Gary Rideout, who owns the comedy bar at the time was the booker at the Brunswick house, which is now a Rexall pharmacy. And he was like, yo, you guys are really funny and like really filthy and dirty and fucked up. Uh, but it's like different. It's like not kind of like cliche sketch comedy you guys want to do a monthly at the Brunswick house? And we were like, yeah, of course. So we started a monthly there and it like kind of evolved. Like our friend Dan Gallia got involved uh, a, a year and a half into it. And we kind of changed our name to the boom. He like legitimized us a lot because he came from the Skechersons, which was like a pretty big uh, sketch troupe in Toronto uh, that like Gary and him and Pat Thornton kind of started. They were like Humber kids as well. So they gave, so like Dan came in and like he made our show like really feel like a big event and he started getting like scott thompson and colin mockery and don ferguson and nikki payne and big acts to come be like guest stars once a month and so kind of from like 06 to like 2012 we had this like big monthly crazy show called the boom show that was at the supermarket and, and eventually for the last year at the drake underground and it was like a brand we wrote a brand new show every month crazy filthy high energy comedy and that was kind of the like the genesis of how I guess I am a comedian now. <laughs> it was all, it was always like, Hey, we should do this and try to make this our careers. But it's like, you don't really, it's so cliche and lame, but it's like, you can't be doing it for that reason, especially when you're that young. Like we, we were taught at, we were taught in comedy school. One good thing that this idiot teacher that we had that I couldn't stand. Uh, and I won't name him cause there's no point. Um, one good thing that he taught us was overnight success in the comedy industry is 10 years. So if you, after 10 years of doing comedy, are successful, famous, or making a living at it, that's like blowing up overnight. That's insanity. And so we always had this, like, I've been doing this now since 04, right? I mean, 06 was the first show, 15, 16 years or whatever. And I make a good portion of the income off of comedy. I still freelance on uh, photo shoots and like, you know, for maybe a third to half of the year, I do that kind of stuff to like supplement my income. I'm proud of that. I don't care. This isn't like a, a shameful thing to admit that like, I still, you know, it's like I've been doing it for 16 years. People are like, wow, that's a long time. I'm like, yeah, man, maybe in 10 more, I'll be really fully self-sufficient on it. And I have a lot of friends that are 15 years in that are fully self-sufficient. There's a lot of people that are 10 years in that are, and there's a lot of people that are 20 years in that still have like full-time day jobs. And are still grinding away. So it's like, like you can't, I, I never really thought of like doing it for the money without, but obviously like when you are a performer and you like going on stage in front of people and performing, that's 
always part of the reason that you did it in the first place was to like have your shit heard by so many people. And then a byproduct of that is your Jay-Z fuck you rich and famous, you know, (laughs) and you could just throw money at like a bouncer and say like, just take care of everything for me. So like, obviously like you'd be lying if you said that you never had those thoughts, but as you do it more and more, that becomes way less important. And like just the ability to continue to do it becomes the, the real win. You know, in in those weaker moments, right? If I mean, you're somebody that's been doing it for, let's say, you know, better part of 20 years now. Yeah. And, sure, yeah. you know, you've had your ups and you've had your downs and, and things like yeah. that. And there are people that come up in the interim and they've had this overnight success, whether it's right. literal or, you know, more than 10 years and, and they put in their time. What is what is how, how does that make you feel? I mean, what does that make you think about your about your own abilities and about uh, about other folks that you think are excellent that maybe haven't had a shot and stuff like that? I mean, we all run into this no matter what we're in. You know, there's filmmakers who have exploded. There's you know musicians, of course, overnight successes and stuff. And you know, there's the people that labor away for the love of it and they love doing it. It's not going to change. But what does that do psychologically? What do you what do you think about when you see somebody who's maybe just you know hasn't really had put in as much time? Yeah, I mean, well, that's a loaded question. I think. One thing is that um, we were always kind of told and learned through doing this kind of stuff, whether it's comedy, music, whatever it is, being talented is the least important part. So being a, per- being a good person to hang out with and be around, a humble, enjoyable human being is very, very important. Um, being professional and hardworking is very, very important. And then, yeah, sure, it's helpful to be funny, but there are a lot of what I personally would consider hack fucking shitty (laughs) comedians that I don't find funny at all that are extremely successful that I have a massive amount of respect for because they are hardworking and they play the game very well and they're they're nice. Mm -hmm. You want to hang out with that person. You want to, you want to go on a tour with that person, even if you're not a huge fan of their actual comedy, like you wouldn't mind spending time with them even if you think the material they write is like a little contrived or, or whatever. So there's that. And, and that's something that like definitely just helps keep you going forward. Cause you're just like, whatever, like keep, put your head down, keep working hard, whether it's 15 years, 10 years, 20 years, 25 years, whatever it is, if you can find a joy in it, then that's half of the battle right there. The other part of it is that like in the 15 years that I've been doing this or so social media has become a very humongous thing. Right? Now, I keep hearing about so, social media, but I'm not familiar yeah. with it myself. Can yeah, you explain? You're a couple of years older than me, not by much, <laughs> but so I feel like you probably haven't heard of social media yet. I think I really, could be your father. Any of the platforms. <laughs> yeah, you're like four years older than me. <laughs> but like we met at camp. So at camp, four years felt like you were like a grandfather. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> so like, you know, social media aside, I think that the only thing that you can do um, if you're someone that like is a creator is and it's very way easier said than done but like try your best to not compare yourself to other people and try your best to only compare yourself to yourself so like i was here 12 months ago in the past 12 months i've done this this and this and i'm here now and i'm really happy with the progress that i have made in the past 12 months because if you're sitting there going wow this guy's been doing it for nine years he's doing a tonight show 
And like, listen, especially if you like the guy and he's your friend, a huge part of you is definitely very happy for that person. Sure. But again, you're full of shit <laughs> if you say that a part of you isn't completely jealous, wants to crawl into a hole, question everything, <laughs> wonder why the hell this isn't happening to you. Well, why? Uh, how shitty am I? Do I not work hard enough? What's going on? You know, whose dick do I got to suck to get a Tonight Show around here? Everything, right? So, like, it, like it, it's difficult for sure, but if you can, like, I really try. So I personally, I very rarely go on social media, especially because I, I'll go on it to like utilize it as, as a content creator. Right. Uh, it's rare that I go on and scroll because maybe like four or five years ago, I personally very much recognized that going on these sites, especially because I'm a comedian. So my network is, is full of people I don't know is not, it's not just like my aunts and uncles and like high school friends. It's like all these people that are doing similar things to me, it doesn't make me feel good. And I just, I was like, I don't care to admit that. I don't, it's not good for my mental health to open up this. My friend's got a great joke. He's like, you know, you, you go open up Facebook, you get to that news feed, you scroll what he calls like the wheel of death or whatever, the wheel <laughs> of sadness. You see really sad news about something happening like Syria. You feel terrible. He goes, but then I see really good news about my friend having a baby. I feel even worse. <laughs> he said, for every for every post that someone makes about how great their life is, they should be forced to make a post of them sitting on the edge of their bed crying <laughs> because they do that too. So like we've created this like weird bubble where you can go and only present the best version of yourself. And it, I don't like it. Like, not to say that I'm, not, I'm unable to like open it up see my friends have good news. It's not to say that I never go on it. I'll pull it up. Be like, what's going on in the world? I'll give it a quick five minutes to be like, whew, okay, cool. I escaped that <laughs> unscathed. Relatively unscarred. Without yeah. depression. Yeah. But it's like, it is, it, it is hard to see um, these things happen along the way. But I think if you like, for me, my mantra is like, I'm only looking at where I am compared to where I was. And there's definitely been years where I'm like, I didn't do enough. I feel like I'm farther behind and I could have done more. And that motivates me to do more the next year. But if I'm sitting there like looking at all the P I mean, I have a lot of friends that are like, you know, getting Netflix specials and I'm extremely happy for them legitimately, but like, it's going to be a torturous event to just go online every day and like look at them and try to and compare myself to them. It's not something I, I want to partake in. Yeah. It's not exactly helpful. It's not constructive. It's not healthy, truthfully. No, yeah. No, I mean, no, if no. you can find motivation, in a little competition, there's nothing yes. wrong. I mean, you get on a basketball court, you do want to try and actually win. But if yes. you don't win, nobody cares because you're terrible. All, you're all terrible at basketball. Exactly. When it's your your life's ambition, it's harder right. to to walk away and go, well, I guess I'm not as good at basketball as Michael right. Jordan. Well, and if it's making you worse at basketball, or it's like, it's like instead of you then going home and being like, I'm going to work on my jump shot, you go home and eat a tub of ice cream and don't play basketball for a week. That's then my it's like, kind of training. You know, you know, yeah, listen, it sounds fantastic. I, just, I don't think it's going to do anything for your shooting percentage. No, it will go down. Well, I mean, this is the thing about comedy I think is, is really, really particular because if you make movies or you perform or you make records, you perform music, um, you know, you do dance performances, like no other performance, no other thing where you go in front of a live audience. Do you, demand of the audience like there's a litmus test of whether or not a comedy show is good is mm -hmm. there laughter if mm -hmm. there isn't laughter then i guess technically it's a shitty show and Correct. whereas you know you can have crickets uh, after you know a raging guitar solo there's no problem with that nobody worry nobody says oh that's a terrible concert because there wasn't a bunch of laughter or people air guitaring in the aisles 
Yes. You know what I mean? So there has to be this physical response and, and comedy is really subjective. No, I think, I think I, I've said this for, I think comedy aside from our taste buds is the most subjective thing in the entire world because laughter is like a sneeze. You can't control it. So I like, cause I've done public speaking. I've done spoken word. I've done a lot of theater and acting and just dramatic work. I spoke at a TEDx where like, believe me, I wasn't going for the laugh. And you can, you're doing a great job when people sit silently and stare at you. As long as you're engaging, you win. And so the reason that in doing all of those things, I keep coming back to like comedy and identify 100% as a comedian is because imagine doing all those things, but on top of that, you have the pressure of every, let's say five to seven seconds, induce an audible response out of an audience member, much like they would be sneezing. They cannot control it. Like, uh, Seinfeld in that comedian or in that documentary called Comedian said, like, you know, when he threw out all of his material, he's like, look, I'm going to get five minutes on stage where they go, it's Jerry Seinfeld. I'm going to laugh at everything he says. And then if I have shit material, I'm going to bomb and I'm the most famous comedian in the world. And so it's like you can't you can't have someone fake a laugh for, for more than a, a couple of goes before they just sit there. So we are getting now again. And so on the flip side, that makes it the most satisfying performance art there is because when you kill and you have a room full of people erupt in laughter over something that you said not only were you, do you know 100% they're engaged and they're listening they're you're doing something physically to them that is making them like and laughing is good for you it feels good you feel cleansed after it's you like can tell your dad you're a doctor you're a medical practitioner yes 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 exactly he will finally, finally be proud He'll of you. He'll be me. proud of you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Laughter is the best medicine. Look at Patch Adams. Come on, people. Yeah, exactly. In the grand scheme of things, what's the, what's motivating you? What, what I mean, I know what got you started, and I yeah. know that I know what 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 attracts you to it on on an ongoing basis. I mean, that laughter is addictive. I hear that from yeah. every comedian I speak to. But but where do you want to go? What what's pushing you forward? Well, that's also probably something that like you know, in the first 10 years of doing it and then the next 10 years of doing it, something that changes a lot. Like, again, like it's really difficult when you're 22 and just trying to get laid and become the next Adam Sandler um, to think of anything but being the biggest possible celebrity in the world. And as you continue and you get a little older, you start to realize like, hey, you don't need that much money in order to have a very happy life. So you can like, it, I, it was a long time ago. I like changed what it means to me to be successful in the entertainment industry. It used to be, you know, all or nothing. And now it's like the only reason that, um, the only reason besides obviously like, yeah, it would be nice to have an insane amount of money, I guess. Cause I live in the United States of America or I live in the Western world. And we've agreed that capitalism is the way the world w runs aside from like the fact that sure money would be like a lot of money would be nice. Great. It's that like, I am happy to just be able to continue to do it, at it because it's, it's a nice life. I mean, it's like, it's nice. It's, it's Tuesday or Monday at like three in the afternoon. I'm, I'm home in my sweatpants, you know? Um, I had a writing meeting this morning with Jay, my comedy partner. We work together all the time. I mean, like I'm obviously motivated by attaining more success, but 
the the main thing I think that motivates an artist is that they genuinely feel that what they're creating would be if shown to all seven billion people on this earth and translated into all the languages would be enjoyed by a large percentage of those people. So if I if we have like this great joke that we've written that like always does well in front of a crowd, like it just always seems to kill and people always come up and say, man, I love that one bit that you guys do. You have to believe that if you did it then, if this was in front of 200 people, if you did it in front of 1,000 people, maybe 900 would like it. If you did it in front of a million, maybe 900,000 people would like it. And so like, I think you're always striving for reaching as many people as possible with the material that you think they would enjoy. And then again, a byproduct of that becomes, okay, your life might be very different now because you can't leave the apartment without somebody recognizing who you are. I love the fact that that has not happened for me at age 36 because i think that would really fuck me up <laughs> i think that like i'm really like i i've enjoyed a large i enjoy that i have a life and i can go do whatever the hell i want and if at some point in my life that level were to ever happen i would at least not ever feel resentful of that happening because i've had this whole portion of my life where i've I've slowly built to that and I have a big foundation of like material and life experience under my belt so that I think I'd be able to keep a level head and handle that were it to happen. And if it doesn't, I'm getting more and more practiced at this side of it, which is like carve out a little niche, carve out a little career. Uh, don't need to nine to five it. I, uh, you know, I have a nice life. Like it's, and I get to like do the thing that I love to do, which is like create comedic content in one way or another and share it with people. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a boring answer, but I mean, that's what motivates me. Aton Millstone, the world's most boring comedian. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's your niche, right? I have been coined as the most boring comedian. <laughs> well, the thing is, is you actually do as ridiculous and dorky as the, you know, some of your sketches are you're, you often play the, the straight man, as it were in yeah. your sketches, right? Like you sure. often do set up your partner, yes. Jay, uh, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, to go off because he's, you know, I mean, for example, I, I always think of like Jay's ridiculous, um, the, the, the metal Zumba, like that is yes. ludicrous. And just watching it's him true. that in that first one where he's like, you know, he's shimmying his shoulder. It's so silly. You know, and I mean, what is that to be, I mean, to be the straight man? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. We, th I think of it more probably like, cause both of us, like we've got some, some stuff, like both of us can kind of go crazy. Um, it's more that I, I always say it's like I'm driving the car and 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 like I can drive the car and while driving the car, I can do some pretty crazy shit. I just got to make sure that the car stays on the road and I don't crash it and kill us. But like I can like <laughs> scream, you know, you, you've been in the car with one other person before and they're driving and they're fucking going off and they're being crazy and they're singing along to a song and they're making you laugh or whatever. But Jay is like the trashed out of his mind passenger <laughs> and is like hanging out of the sunroof, kicking his legs out of the window, doing whatever the fuck he wants. And I'm here for all of it. Is that how you guys write as well? Like, is that your roles I, as well in terms of the writing? Um, it depends on what we're writing. Like so much of our stuff is like, like we have like so many like 10 second, really short, ridiculous, stupid little impressions or short little sketches or short little bits and then in the last few years, we've been writing sort of like more long form, delving into some ideas that feels more like two person stand up than it would feel like a short little sketch or a short little scene on stage. So it, I, I think it, that would probably depend on like what the idea is. But 
I would say that Jay has a lot of ridiculously silly ideas where I can then say, okay, here's a good framework to put that in. And, you know, there's something very funny about a person like me acting extremely, like I can deliver, I can speak quickly, I can articulate well, I'll remember the words, I can, I can just like rip us right up to the moment of insanity. And then the insanity moment <laughs> happens. And then, and that was that one. Thank you, folks. We'd like to move on now on to the next one. And, and, and so you kind of like, it's like beating the audience from every direction. Like they don't have an opportunity to like settle down at all. Just when they think they can like sit back in their chair and breathe, we're onto something else and they're laughing again. And, and just when we know that they probably need a break from that, we'll settle into something that has a little bit more sort of meat to it that they can kind of like get on the train with us and go along for a longer idea. So it's like, we, I think we think of our like entire act and the whole show that we'll do like an hour long show, uh, like that a little bit. But in terms of like who does what, it kind of just is how it is. Like, I mean, Jay's, we just, we get to be ourselves and have never really like defined those roles. They've just sort of naturally become that. I think, I mean, it's like, I tell people all the time, like, I think Jay's the funniest person I've ever met. Otherwise I probably wouldn't work with him so closely as my comedy writing and performance partner. Yeah. And I spoke uh, to him and he said the exact same thing. He's, uh, he is the, the funniest thing, person yeah. he's ever exactly. met. Exactly. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. But so, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, we don't, yeah, it's, but it, it, it's, it's really fun. It's like, I was saying like, it's really fun to set up a goal. So like Wayne Gretzky, lo- you know, Wayne Gretzky loved making a beautiful pass and like, there's something very enjoyable about. You're the Steve Nash of the, comedy. There you go. Yeah, just yeah, just lobbing it up to him and watching him <laughs> slam dunk it down. And I get the best seat in the house. I'm up yeah. there with him watching him kill. And then obviously, like, there's many, many bits or jokes that we have where, yeah, I'm saying things or doing things. It's getting a huge laugh as well. Clearly, those also feel great. Like, of course, it feels great to do things solo and know that 100% of the laughter is coming from me. But we like the sort of, like, team collaborative group rock band kind of like element to it and it makes it fun i mean you know a stand-up comedian probably is doing two three sets a night a lot of the time they really need to keep working out the material me and him will do all of that work in the writing room keep writing it saying it back to one another he says it to me i'm not laughing i say it to him he's not laughing he starts saying something i start dying he then knows this is the right this is the right thing to go on there like we're kind of doing a lot of that work not to say that we don't need our reps on stage before doing a bigger show, but we can do a lot less of them and still feel really confident bringing that material in front of a group. You know? mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I mean, working with my brother for years, you know, we would, we would come at each other with ideas. We'd come at each other with scripts or, uh, you know, with scenes, you know, character elements. And, and, you know, if the other person wasn't feeling it, you right. know, you were, I mean, you had to trust that other person's taste because you were writing it. You loved it. You thought it was yeah. great. You got it. You got to test it up. You got to test it out in a safe place, a place where you're yeah, going to get proper feedback and actual criticism that's going to not, you know, rip your soul out, but actually help you make it funnier or better or more interesting. And if it, it's, it's the kind of thing where like any criticism on this is going to rip your soul out. It's more, it's like, like you said, like it's a safe space. So it's like you, two things. You need to be in a safe environment to pitch anything, but you also need to literally have no ego, not like say I have no ego, but still have an ego about it. But like literally be like, I have this idea and in, in the spirit of saving time and in the spirit of like creating the best possible work, it needs to be like, I think that's a little bit hacky or I think that that's been done or I don't think that's super funny. Prove, prove me wrong. 
And to be able to speak that like sort of bluntly about it, knowing that that person isn't going to hear you and go, what the hell, man? They're going to hear you and go, thank you. Yeah, good call. And because both of you have literally checked your egos at the door. So like that, those two things, safe space and no ego, make it, make it um, easier to create good work. You know, and what and what about functionally? I mean, we've had the small you know disruption in all of our lives. This tiny little pandemic thing that's kind of meant that thing, yeah. everybody's you know in different places and working remotely. You guys are working remotely too, right? Yeah, I mean, well, Jay, I mean, we both we we both moved to New York together. Uh, like six months ago, Jay moved upstate, like uh, near Albany, like three and a half hours away. It's funny because people are like, "Oh my god!" Like. That's so crazy. How are you guys still going to do stuff? I was like, I hate to break it to you, but when like when we live like 15 minutes apart, it's not like I was on his lap every morning at 8 a.m. <laughs> like we're, still, we're best friends and like we're we're comedy partners, and it's like a very intense but amazing relationship. Um, but like something like distance isn't obviously the, we're not sleeping together, so something like distance <laughs> isn't really like sort of driving a wedge between us, you know. Right. So um, he still comes to the city at least once a month. We have a monthly show at New York Comedy Club. We're actually starting to produce a show upstate near where he lives at, at a bigger venue. So there's actually like him actually moving. has actually created a couple of more opportunities for us. Um, we can still get together for shoots. We are, even when we were living around the corner, uh, we a lot of our meetings are like phone meetings. We don't need to look at each other at this point in our lives. We have long two-hour meetings. Um where we get a lot done, we treat it like it's a job. So if there's obviously, um, you know, one week a month or something where both of us need to go and supplement the rest of our income by doing, uh, you know, work on a photo shoot or working on set or freelance of some kind, no problem. There's plenty to get done when we're not both available. Uh, but also we treat it like, you know, generally every Thursday, Friday, we have an idea of exactly what the plan is for the following week. Generally, there's a 9 a.m. Monday morning meeting um, that lasts anywhere from two to four hours. There's a lot of stuff to go over. There's administrative talks. There's creative talks. There's like, you know, a one-week goal, a one-month goal, um, a six-month plan, and then obviously like long-term plans as well. So it's like, it's basically treated like pandemic or no pandemic. Um, we treat the the, the the partnership like a business because we're ultimately in the world of comedy and it's very easy to just think that all that matters is laughing all the time and then you'll look up 30 years have gone by and like you're working at starbucks and never doing any comedy you know <laughs> so we like so like the pandemic hasn't obviously like it hasn't helped at all in the live show sense um, we never did any Zoom shows or drive-in shows. Our material isn't really conducive to a Central Park, no mic, yelling at people while they're having a picnic-style show. So we patiently waited for our New York Comedy Club show to come back. We shot a ton of online digital content. We've written a ton. We wrote a new album during the pandemic that's going to come out early next year. So we did a lot of work, obviously, but we just sort of, like everyone, we kind of like, you know, we tried to make the most of the time that we were given and sort of pivot to what can we do now since we're unable to go on stage and, 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 and tell jokes. Yeah. I and mean, what sort of things were you doing then? I mean, you, like you said, you didn't do actual performance, but you guys put together a lot of short sketch, um, mm -hmm. short film, uh, little bits and bobs. I mean, I know social media is not your thing, but yeah. you guys use it quite well and quite often. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, an, it's, it's, I think that 
look, the ability to get content out to people that quickly, I think is amazing. Like I personally don't love social media for a lot of those kind of like reasons that, that many people in the world are very aware of and that like, it makes a lot of people extremely unhappy and all that stuff. But from a, like forgetting all that bullshit, like from a content creation standpoint, social media is fantastic. It's leveled the playing field for so many artists to be able to like reach a wide group of people with their material. Uh, it's given like a great platform to people. I think if everyone just used social media for the, what the good that social media can bring the world, yeah, it'd be great. Obviously there's a bunch of evil fucks out there and you know, emotions are real and people can't help, but like whatever, get really depressed because of social media. But for us, it's like, there's, uh, there was a great opportunity to take a lot of the material that we've got and shoot really fun short sketches for Instagram. And I edit and I know how to put subtitles on things and make cool little cover pages for them so we can have a good looking page. And we kind of treat, um, we go in and out with like Instagram and stuff. Like we kind of treat it like seasonally. Let's do a bunch of stuff, release it weekly. Then we get so sick of it. We're just like, oh <laughs> God, like I hate this. We, we're not the best. We're, we're good. We're good at it. We don't have the most amount of followers. We're not like so great at like getting our stuff to go viral and blah, 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 which is going to gain our following. But in terms of like creating and producing the content and getting it out there, we treat it a little bit like let's, let's blast out a bunch of stuff for a couple months, take a couple months off, post some pictures, whatever. But yeah, we did. Yeah. We, we, we shot a lot of stuff. I mean, we safely, you know, we found people that are willing to come shoot stuff in a safe, small crew as, as socially distant as possible setting. And, um, yeah, that was, that was, that was great. And we're still, you know, we're shooting more stuff, but yeah, right now, our, I mean, right now our main focus is we're producing these, these shows. And so it's kind of like, you know, our, we're kind of excited about being back on stage and, um, and we have a bigger, bigger project that we're producing right now that we're actually trying to like raise money, like a short film that is like, uh, uh, you know, trying to like raise proper budget for it, like get some, some, some name actors uh, attached to it and, and try to like make a real push at some, some festivals for it. So we're sort of like, uh, we're, we're easing up currently on the short, simple content and we're taking a couple of big swings in the next, uh, you know, six months or so. Where are you looking for financing for something like that? I mean, where does somebody go? I know in Canada, there are some arts bodies that if you happen to qualify, if it happens to be the right type of project, you could, you know, put in for a couple of bucks and kind of cobble together a budget that way. Where yeah. are you guys looking? What happens in America for that? Well, you know, we're, we're lucky, very lucky to, to have been, we're part of, um, Comedy Records is our label and our management company that um, has produced all of our albums that get played on like Sirius XM radio that are released on Spotify, iTunes, whatnot. We have a live album that was released right before the pandemic hit. And we have two studio albums that we've released in the past five years as well. So Comedy Records is kind of like, um, while they're a independent record label focused on producing sketch and stand-up albums in Canada, they wrap a lot of American comedians. And they are also, in the 10 years since they've been around, are growing into ideally a production company, more of a management company in some way, as opposed to just solely producing records, which is still their, their bread and butter and they're very good at it. So for us, obviously, like we approach, you know, we, we try to keep things as in-house as possible. Um, but obviously with the understanding that like, listen, if you're trying to raise, let's say you're trying to raise $50,000 for something. For us, it's like in the States, it's kind of the old fashioned way of since moving here, we've met a lot of 
people that are fans of ours that work at production companies um, that have started their own production companies that have connections to people at production companies. And it's kind of like, and we've also met a lot of very talented actors and comedians. So we're doing it the old fashioned way. We have a, we have a great script as we think we do. And we're sending it out to um, people that we want to be in the project and knowing that like, if we can get a couple of names attached to it, like somewhat bigger names, that makes it easier for someone with money to say, oh, you've got so-and-so, I'll fund this project. And if that means that we collect money from one, two, three, four, five entities in whatever capacity that we need to raise the full budget for the project, we're going, yeah, I mean, we're doing it like we're sending our script out to people that we know that are reading it that are like potentially attaching themselves to the project and then using that to leverage money right. to shoot it. And so where, will, and where will these wind up living in the end of the day? Well, I mean, the goal with the short, obviously, and I mean, these are lofty aspirations, but what are aspirations, if not lofty, <laughs> uh, <laughs> is to, yeah, I mean, we, we had the, the short that we've written is, um, it's like a 20 minute short. It's not like a six minute thing. And it's, uh, it's potentially adaptable into a feature as well. We have a whole outline for the feature. So the reason that this isn't one that we're just, cause we've shot a lot of stuff on our own as well. That's gotten into like, you know, New York short film festival and like some, some good little film festivals around Austin, micro shorts, film festival, like festivals that are legitimate, but we're, we're trying to get it into something like a Sundance or a Tribeca. Right. So, so something where, um, let, like, let's say hypothetically we get Colin Quinn to just throw a random name out there to like be in this cause, cause we have a connection to him and he likes it. And then it gets into a Sundance. Uh, the idea is that like we are the writers, directors, and stars of this 20-minute short film that is in a major festival uh, that is then being, you know, a distributor is speaking to us saying, hey, this is great. I'd love to work on a feature with you. And we say, well, we've got three outlines for these features. And we also have the movie that you just watched as a script for a feature. Let's talk. So like those are the, those would be the plans for something where you're trying to raise like a, a, a serious budget for it and like, get some name actors to be in it because because it's the name actors no one's putting anything in sundance or tribeca with uh, written and directed by jay wells lequier and Aton millstone they're like who the <laughs> fuck are those guys now you'd love to think that one year from now just, the new well, you, matt damon and ben affleck right you'd love to think that just based on the merit of the writing and the cinema we have a great cinematographer that's going to shoot it for us we have a production company with gear that's going to give us gear for a great deal to make it but and so you'd love to think just on the merit of the work a place like those big festivals would accept it. And I'm sure that one or two or three out of the how many projects they take every year, they do just say, we got to leave a few spaces open for the nobodies. But they're, you know, these people are accepting things into festivals that like have real people in them. And that's just generally the way it works. So we're, we're, we're going at it that way. I mean, the show that we're producing upstate, the show that we're producing up in, in near Albany, We've got our friend Emma Wellman doing the show. Now, she's a, a Netflix comedian. She's hilarious. We're using the fact that she, I mean, openly with her, it's fine, it's understandable, but it's like, we're using the fact that, like, we think she can help us draw out a large group of people to, to do the show, uh, or to come to the show, and we're also performing on the show as well. So it's like, this is just, that's just the nature of it, you know. Yeah, you got to leverage the people that you know, and you know, obviously, yeah. you know, their name helps you, and your good show helps them. And I mean, exactly, yeah, everybody yeah, benefits. And, 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 and like, you know, we'd raise budget; they'd be paid for their time; they'd be happy to be in it. They're only doing it if they like the script. The general feedback is, "This is a great script. I'd love to be involved in this." If you guys can do what you're saying, you're going to do. So, yeah, it has to be kind of transparent like that. Otherwise, it's weird. 
<laughs> Otherwise, it's just weird and shady. <laughs> so uh, what kind of advice do you have for people who are interested in getting into the comedy game? Stay away, bro. You're my competition. <laughs> I'll fucking drown you. No. Um, I don't know. I, you know what? People tell me, like, I don't, I don't really know. Like, I, I, you know, it's like all, all the advice that I have is all the most cliche shit. You know, do what you love to do. Write what you know. Um, what I generally tell people is, like, if you want to do, like, stand-up comedy, you want to go try it. Write down the like joke that you think you've got that you or, or the story. I, ideally, it's a story that like you've told your friends many, many times. That, that oh, it's a great story that you've got. It always does well. It's just a little easier than like writing a sort of a nuanced bit. But or or listen, or you think you're a stand-up comedian and you've written some jokes that you think are great jokes. Take the ones that you think are the best ones you've ever written. Take them to an open mic. Understand that you're going to be performing for other comedians that don't generally give a shit about anything except them getting up on stage to tell their joke. But tell them to strangers instead of your friends, and you're going to find out very quickly if you're funny or if your friends were just being nice to you. <laughs> so, like, it's kind of like, you know, go. Go try. I don't know. And, like, and fail. go try yeah, be very ready to fail. And, and like, you know, you'll learn a lot more from a bad set than a good set. Good sets are good for the ego and they're good for confidence and they're good for like affirming and validating that you are a good joke writer or whatever, that you're, that you can make people laugh. But like, it's the bad sets that you learn from, which I'm sure many comedians have said before, but it's true. It's just like when you bomb, it makes you look inward and, really like determine what, what what happened but you kill you're just like yeah, of course i killed i'm great i'm hilarious that's why i wanted to do comedy oh. <laughs> where where are they sending the check to let me just double check my bank account somebody must be funneling money into it you know <laughs> so where can people find a little bit more about you um yeah follow uh i guess follow jay and Aton on instagram that's the easiest one we have a facebook page too i think but we are pretty bad at facebook it's like um it's that's where, still a thing it's where old people go to yell now so <laughs> uh yeah we have an instagram at jay and Aton. um it's got a bunch of fun silly sketches on it and we have yeah we have three albums out so they're on like anywhere you get streaming itunes spotify um Amazon, Google Music, all the all the things. Um, and they're available. I mean, if you go to our website, jnaton.com, uh, it generally has like upcoming show information. You can have links to the albums and uh, our Instagram and stuff like that. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for being on the show and sharing with us how you make a living. Dude, thank you so much for having me, Robbie. This is great. Subscribe to Making a Living Show on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more on the show, visit makingalivingshow.com and follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Making a Living Show is produced by Next Exit Media and hosted by me, Roby Levy. Thanks for listening.